Well, morning. It's good to see you again. I've not been here for a while, so it's great to see some of you again. My name's Dennis. I know many of you. Some of you I don't know, because the good news is there are people here now that didn't used to be here a while ago. Some churches you go to, it's the same people for years and years and years. But it's really good to see some new people here. My name's Dan. Lynn's my wife. She's sitting back there. My son's there as well, and a few other people in my family. But it's great to be with you. Just a few things about Rooftop, then I'll get it done, because I'd like to give you an update, but I haven't got time this morning, because I want to preach about love uh, in just a moment's time. But if any of you are interested, I brought a few little books with me. I just wrote a book called The Rooftop. If you've got nothing better to do, it costs you a fiver, and you can, if you can't sleep, it's a great way to help you to sleep at night, so, so go get that. And a few of you have said over the last year or so you'd like to partner with me in this ministry, but we've never had a chance to talk about it. So I brought a few little bits with me out there that explain that as well. So come and have a look at that afterwards, and we can talk about that. But um, we we just sang just a moment ago about love vast as the ocean. And I I was asked a while ago if I'd preach today here, and yes, I said, okay, I will give me a theme, and the theme I was given was love. And I thought, great, how do you speak about love in like two hours? All right, just joking, 20 minutes or so. How do you do that? Because it is vast, isn't it? Love as vast as the ocean. How do you do that? So what I thought I'd like to do, and I was given a scripture as well, which we'll read in a minute, rather than talk about the whole ocean of love, maybe what we can do in 25, 30 minutes or so is just get a cup of water, dip it into the ocean and just take a little bit out and then look at it and see what it looks like. Um, If you've got a Bible... You could turn it to um, probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible, um, for many people anyway. 1 Corinthians in chapter 13 is where we're going to look. Um, and um, it's page 1153 in these Bibles that, that um, the church has. And I do recommend, if you haven't got one, get a hold of one, would you? Because I'm going to spend quite a bit of my time just looking at what the Bible says this morning. And so you can follow it through and make sure that what I say is actually what... Uh, what the Bible says. But I'm, I think many of you will know um, these, this, in fact, this, this particular passage I'm going to read right now is one that Lynn and I had at our wedding. Um, and many of you may have done too. It's one, and I think, I think Princess Diana did as well, didn't she? So if it's good enough for her, I guess it's good enough for most of us. But uh, oh, and Charles as well, he was there, wasn't he? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, let me just say that again, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put foolish ways, sorry, childish ways behind me. 
Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now, these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is... Is... Just to make sure you get the point. Okay, love. Okay. Now you know that, don't you? It's a, it's, a, it's a scripture that you know, I guess. If you've ever read the Bible, you'll know it. And uh, Did any of you have that at your wedding? Yes, it's pretty popular. A few of you did, yeah. And we did. <coughs> and of course, Lynn and I have done everything it says ever since. Um, everything that's there, we do every day of our lives, like you all do too. But what, what, as I was thinking, how do I dip this, this little glass in this ocean of love and bring something out of this, this particular passage, which I was asked to speak on? I wanted just to look at one, one aspect of it. And what, what Paul is doing, Paul wrote this letter to Corinth, that's why it's called Corinthians. And he wrote two of them, so this is called 1 Corinthians. The next one is called 2 Corinthians. You know, you know this stuff, but just in case you don't, I want you to feel that, because not everyone knows the Bible that well, and sometimes in church we can assume everybody does. So if you're not sure what it is, that's what it is. 1 Corinthians, first letter, by a man called Paul, to a church at Corinth. And this, this church at Corinth that he was writing to, let me just tell you a little bit about it, and, and then maybe how it may apply to, um, to, to us even, as people living today. This church at Corinth was in a big city that was a famous city. And, and if, you were, if you lived in Corinth, you were thought to be a very sophisticated, clever person who, you had to, who knew how to use really good words and impress people. You also lived in a city where probably people looked at you with quite a lot of envy <clears throat> because you had a lot of stuff and a lot of position in life. Um, and as well as that, you lived in a city where morality was out of the window <coughs> where people thought the way to find out what life was all about was by having great experiences, spiritual even experiences, but experiences where you experience something really good happening in your life. And so if you were a Corinthian person, a person who lived in Corinth, you were a person who was erudite, a person who was experienced, a person who was intelligent, a person who gave off capacity, do you know what I mean? And on top of that, you were a person who lived how you wanted to live and you wanted experiences in life to make your life somehow more meaningful. That's what Corinthian people were like. And right into that, that kind of world, that kind of city, the Holy Spirit, through the message of Jesus, breaks in, and these people start becoming Christians. And suddenly you get these churches that are made up of people that were like that. So they were people that were self-seeking, they thought they were something, they thought they'd arrived, and now they're Christians. Just like none of us. <laughs> but you know, we don't live that far from a city that is very much like Corinth. And many of us work in it. And I just want just to pause for a moment and think about that. When you think about the kind of city that Corinth was, people that were all about themselves, all about getting what they could get, all about seeking pleasure for its own sake, experiences just for the sake of experience, that is what they were like. And into that city, a church was born. I don't know about you, but I can see a lot of myself in those people. Can't you? And what happens is, now you say, but Dennis, they became Christians. So therefore, all that went away. Because the moment you become a Christian, everything changes, doesn't it? And you're no longer anything like you were before, are you? Or is it maybe that what actually happens is, something does happen, you are changed, but you spend the rest of your life having God work it out through you. I think that's what's going on. And you see, to this church, Paul 
He wants to write to them. And I guess the question I want to think about for the next few minutes is this. What does a good church really look like? That's what I think he's dealing with. Because what happened to these Corinthians was, they thought, well, okay, now we've got Jesus, what we'll do is we'll make Jesus the one who gives us all those things we want. So when they met together, when they were being church, what they did was they looked for all of those same kind of things. They loved the people that were really clever. The ones that could put it all right and say all the right things. They held them up in high regard. Oh, these really, they're the good Christians, the really bright ones, the intelligent ones. They're the really good ones. And then there were some Christians who they could speak in tongues. Now, some of those tongues, we'll come back to this in a second, were the clever people. The others, but they spoke in a heavenly language. And some of them could prophesy. And some of them had words of wisdom and knowledge. And these Christians thought, man, that's what it means to be a really good Christian. That's what it's all about. And I'm sure their worship services were just absolutely fantastic. Because they would have known how to get in the best musicians, you know. They would have known how to get along the people that could really make it the big event. And so the, the impression that they had in Corinth was that to be a good church... To be the kind of church God wanted you to be, what it meant was it was a church that was really all about us. Does that make any sense? A church that by going to it, we meet these really powerful super-Christians and that really is what we all aspire to be, these kinds of people. But that big picture of the church, what it actually meant when, it, when you worked it through, you can see this all through the letter of the Corinthians, the things they weren't that interested in were how you care about people. They weren't that interested, really, in, in, in actually helping people understand the truth because they thought, we've got it, we're okay with that. And to that church in Corinthians, Paul writes what we just read about love. And I'm going to just, in a minute, unpack it a little bit. But if you've got a Bible, what you might want to do, because it will be helpful if you did, is just go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and then look above it and what you'll see is the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because the Bible is very logical in the way that it's written. And if you just look above, start at verse 12, just, just for a moment of um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we need, you know, you know this, I'm sure, but when God inspired people to write the Bible, he didn't inspire them with the chapters and verses. They were added later. And sometimes they're not that helpful. This is one of those occasions. Because when you start 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1, it starts with, if I speak in the tongues of men. But if you go back, you'll see that it's just a continuation of what was there before. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. I'm going to read it. It'll take a bit of time, but I want us just to get the real feel of this. This is Paul writing to this church that thinks it's arrived, that thinks it's got there. And this is what he says. The body's a unit, though it's made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. We're all baptised by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We're all given the one spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. 
On the contrary, those parts of the body, listen to this part, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honour to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. And then if you've got one of the church Bibles, it might be the same as the one you're looking at, you'll see there's this verse that sort of hangs nowhere. It doesn't quite fit verse 31, but it doesn't quite fit chapter 13, verse 1. It sort of hangs there. Can you see it hanging there? This is why sometimes the chapter and verse doesn't help. Because what this hanging verse says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. Um, the, the bridge, I think it's a bit of a bridge verse, really. Basically, what he's saying, and if I had more time, I'd spend longer, but I haven't, so I'll do it short. What he's saying is, this idea that you Corinthians have got, that the church is for the big cheeses who think they run everything and we all look up to them and want to be like them, which is basically what it was, that the only Christians that really count are the ones that can speak in tongues and have gifts of prophecy. It, that church is not anything like what the church should ever be. Because the most excellent way is not to be somebody that everybody thinks is wonderful. The most excellent way is the way of love. It's the way of love. And that's why, look at what, look at what um, Paul says when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Bearing all that in mind, hopefully now you'll see why these, these, um, these verses are probably not necessarily... When Paul wrote them, he didn't have... Lynn and I getting married in mind. Now, I'm sure that what's there is important for Lynn and I being married and you being married to your husband's straight wife as well. But Paul did not write these verses to be read at wedding services specifically. He actually wrote them to a church that thought it was great but wasn't really being the church that God wanted it to be. That's what he wrote them for. That's the purpose. And the reason that they were not what God wanted them to be is because they were making a big thing out of small things, but a small thing out of the big thing. They were making a lot out of people that seemed very gifted being important, but they'd missed the whole point that actually what makes a church simply is love. And that's why he says what he says. And I'm going to just spend a little bit of time, not long, but just trying to unpick a few of these things. I don't really want to preach my thoughts. I just want to pick out what, what he says when he begins to describe this. So look at verse chapter 13 and verse 1. Bearing in mind all that I just said about what they thought was important in that church. Chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Now what he means by that is the tongues of men, he's saying if I speak very profound, deep, wonderful truths, if I'm this great biblical teacher and interpreter and can stand before you and preach, or if I'm someone that God has given 
a supernatural gift to, and I can even speak to you in the tongues of angels. Even if I can stand here and, and speak in tongues and you'll hear God speak to you directly. Even if those things are true. Well, look at what he says after it. Even if that's true, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Um, I wonder if I could just... Because what, the reason he said that, I think, I'm not sure if this is the right one. If I break these, then Roger will pay for them. Um, uh, but, look. And the point of him saying it was, if that's all I am, but I have not love, I'm just that. Makes a noise. Slowly, quickly, it's gone. Now, some of you are thinking, I'm going to listen and see how long it lasts for. But that's his point. I'm just something, in other words, if all I've got is these big supernatural things that make you think I'm great, if that's all I have but I haven't got love, then I make my noise and then it's gone. It's finished. It's all over. Well, okay. Still speaking very much to that church at Corinth because of all these people that were there and what they thought, he carries on. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains. That's pretty big, isn't it? I know Jesus said, say to this mountain, move and it will move. And we all know it's true, but none of us have tried it, I, I guess. I mean, I know that many people speak about it metaphorically, and they talk about this mountain. I get that, but specifically, I am pretty sure that nobody here has ever gone up to a mountain and said, get out of the way. If you have, come and share it with us. And we'll all think, man, you're wonderful, you're incredible. I want to be a Christian like you. But once we've thought that, we'll read the rest of the verse. Because this is the amazing thing that the Word of God says about this. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, not some, all. If I am not just a first-class Christian honours student, but the best-scoring one in the whole country, yeah? All of it. I don't just get 80%, I get 100%. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries, all knowledge, if I have faith that can move a mountain, but have not love, I am nothing. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Really, when you think about it, because I think many of us would admire people that could do those things that Paul talks about. Man, I want to be a Christian. I want to, I want to be a, do you want to be a Christian that you could say to a man to move and it'll move? Do you want to be a Christian where you would have so much wisdom and so much knowledge and so much understanding that God could use you to speak in such powerful ways? Do you want that? Yeah, probably. Paul's not saying those things are not good things. What he's saying is they're not actually the most excellent thing. And then look at this one. Because he doesn't stop there. And if I give... All, not, not some of it, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, that's a, bit, that's a big give, isn't it? Okay, guys, everything I've got, you can have it all. And once you've taken it, I'm going to go and jump in the fire. For Jesus. That's big, isn't it? I'm pretty sure that if, if the church at Corinth had people like that in it, which it probably did, and the church at Billericay Baptist had people like that in it, which it could, I'm pretty sure 
they would not be seen as your average church member. They would be seen as pretty super Christians that we should all aspire to be like. But look at what he says again. If I give all I possess to the poor, surrender to my, my body to the flames, but have not love. Now, he, he inserts a little word here. He doesn't say, I am nothing. He says, I gain nothing. Interesting, isn't it? Why does he add the gain and not the, the am there? The reason he puts the gain in, because what he's saying is, if you do these seemingly, supremely self-denying things, but don't do it in love, it actually wasn't self-denying at all. Because, you know, there are people that do good deeds because other people look at them and think how wonderful they are when they do them. There are some people that do great things because they think they get a lot of recognition when they do them. And I can just see that in the church at Corinth. These people, you know, that that probably when they had a fundraising event, they wrote out the big checks, you know what I'm saying? Or, or, when, or when people were in need, they would go up and say, yes, I've helped 632 people this week with the giving that I've given. Do you know what I'm saying? And what Paul is saying is, if you do it for that reason, rather than just genuinely because you love people, you gain nothing. In other words, you can't buy God's favour, because it's not for sale. You asked me to preach on love, I bet you're glad I'm saying all this, aren't you? But, but what, what Paul is saying, and just flick on to, to verse 8, and then we're, I'm going to talk about love for the last few minutes in just a moment, but what he then, if you flick on to verse 8, what he says is this, love never fails. What he's doing is he's contrasting those things which the church at Corinth thought were the great things with what is the excellent thing. And now he underlines it even more. He says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies... They will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Listen, this is what he's saying, and I'll talk about love for the last few minutes, I'll be done. What he's saying is this. It's so easy, as a Christian, and as a church, so easy to put all our emphasis on the things that we can see that make it look like we think we've got it really right. But what he says is, that's what children do. That's not grown-up, mature Christianity. Grown-up, mature Christianity is really understanding what is the most excellent thing, and that is love. So he's talked about all these spectacular things, prophecy, moving mountains, all of that. And now he says, let me talk to you about love, which we would expect to be huge and grand and beyond our reach. But if you look at it, it's not. And I think as I, as I try to picture this and, and think about what does it mean to be a, a church that God wants it to be, what I think Paul is saying is all this spectacular stuff, all this big stuff, you can have it, and nothing wrong with it, but realise there's something much bigger than that, even though it appears much smaller than that. What really makes Christians distinctive from the world? Is it the fact that we can prophesy? Is it the fact that we can speak in tongues? Well, that actually doesn't make us distinctive because there are other faiths that have people that prophesy and speak in other languages too. What is it? And now Paul drills it down. And it's very simple and it's very gritty. And I've just, just made a couple of little notes to make sure I say the right thing here, what I want to say. 
Just look at um, what he says about love. Verse 4, right in the middle of those two sections I just talked to you about, Paul actually talks about what love is. What he's saying is, this is the most excellent way. Church of Corinth, church at Billericay, church anywhere, this is the most excellent way. This is what shows that you are mature followers of Jesus Christ, regardless of all the other stuff. You can have it or not have it. It's okay, but that's not it. And he says this, love. And then then he explains it. Love is patient. What's patient? I'm not going to spend hours on each of these, just a couple of seconds, because I haven't got time. Love is patient. And what he's saying, love is patient, and as I understand it, he means this. Love, being patient, means having the capacity not to retaliate to someone when they do something we don't like. That's what he means by love is patient. In other words, we put up with other people who annoy us. And I am pretty sure that there are some people that you are annoyed, annoyed by that happen to be part of Billericay Baptist Church. It's very likely that that's possible. Is it possible? It's likely, isn't it? Well, I mean, you may never ask me to come and preach here again, but I can tell you there are some people here that I find annoying sometimes. <laughs> and if you want to find out, come and ask me afterwards and I won't tell you. But, but I'm just being honest, because we can all be the super spiritual people that Paul is saying we shouldn't be in his, in his letter, because we hide behind all that stuff. But the truth is, the reality is, that you get 100 or 200 people together in the same room, meeting together once a week or throughout the week, it's a pretty cast-iron guarantee that sometimes we're going to get on each other's nerves. It just happens. We're different. Um, and so what he's saying is, if we really are about the most excellent thing, if we want to live lives in such a way that the church will be what it is meant to be so the world will see the difference God makes in our lives, then we will be patient with each other. I'm not saying we're not. I'm just saying that's what we will be. We'll actually learn to not just put up with each other. I remember when I used to be a pastor of a church, we had this lovely lady in our church, and she used to say, oh, it's all about not treading on people's toes. No, it isn't. That's ridiculous. It's far more than that, isn't it? It's not just putting up with each other. It's actually learning to love each other in spite of the fact that we see things differently. So are you patient with people? Because if you are, or if you're becoming it, then what's happening is you're understanding what is the most excellent way. And I think what Paul would say is, if you're thinking, I don't care much about people, but I want the gift of tongues, he would say to you, let's put the gift of tongues on one side and let's start learning to love people. For example. Not that you shouldn't want it, but it's not as important. And then you carry on. He talks about love being patient. Love is kind. What's kind? I, I, I come up with a, I worked a few definitions together when I looked at this word and came up with the Dennis Peathers definition. It's not in any, anywhere, but I like it. it says, this is what I made, made, come up with. A compassion that expresses itself in good deeds. A compassion that expresses itself in good deeds. And I put in brackets, putting other people's needs before your own. That's kindness, isn't it? Just compassionately doing things that help other people because they need help. Even if it costs you something. Time, money, or whatever. It's not very spectacular, this, is it? This church at Corinth, they didn't have time for all this stuff. It was too small. 
doesn't matter if I treat people, as long as we get to the service and we're here, we have a great time and you know, we hear the word of God and there's prophecy and there's spiritual this and there's all that stuff and we can look at these great people. That's what we want to do. Paul says, hang on, put all that on one side. If you really want to be church, a church that can, say, can help the world to know who Jesus is, be patient with each other. Be kind to each other. And I'll finish in a minute by just going through these last few things. He says this, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy it doesn't look around and say, I want what they've got. And that doesn't just mean material things, it means in terms of spiritual stuff as well. That's what he's talking about. It means we don't look around and say, oh, I, wish I, had the, I wish I was a super gifted Christian like whoever. It doesn't boast. It doesn't stand up in front of people and say, look at me, I'm just like Jesus. It doesn't say to people, aspire to be like me because I've got it all sorted out. What it says is humbly together we learn how to bring out the best in each other. That's what I think he's saying when he says that. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. I think probably if you wanted to summarise all of the list, you could probably use that one. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And then I think the one that most of us struggle with the most, it keeps no record of wrongs. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't say, three years ago, two years ago, six months ago, it doesn't say, I know I should love that person, but these are the things that have caused me not to love them. Can you fill in your own sentences what I'm trying to say here? It doesn't do those things. Love does not do those things. Because love actually says, actually, I will love that person even if I don't think they deserve to be loved. Because that's just how God loves me. And you say, Dennis, that's great, but that is, you can't do that, it's impossible. Try it, it doesn't work. It lasted about a minute. And then someone got on my nerves, so I stopped trying. Or that person that I'd forgiven, I'd forgiven them. I said, okay, Lord, it's all okay. And I came along the next Sunday, walked in, and they said something to me which really got me angry again. So now I've decided I'll just stay away from them. I'll go and sit somewhere else. Or I'll join a different house group. Or whatever, you know. And what, what Paul is saying, very unspectacularly, is this little stuff, the gritty, gritty stuff, that is all about how we live and be together, is actually what really matters. This is the most excellent way. So if there are people who come together in whatever ways we do, and actually we keep a record of the wrong things that other people have done to us, and we hold on to that, we're actually not being what Jesus wants us to be. Even if we speak in tongues. Even if we prophesy. Even if we could stand at the front and articulate the most powerful sermon in the world, and everyone would say, what a fantastic Christian you are. All of that, as good as it is, is not the most excellent thing. The most excellent thing is being able to go up to someone who's annoyed you and restore it. That's the most excellent thing. Because that's when the kingdom of God breaks in and forgiveness and change and repentance and new life pours through because transformation is taking place. I dare to say this, congregations like we often sit are not the most helpful way of sitting to do this stuff. We need other ways, don't we? Because you can hide in here easily, can't you? Mm, you look very thoughtful. 
you asked me to preach on love and you gave me this passage, I'm only telling you what the passage says. I could say, love is a lovely feeling where Jesus says, it's okay, son, it's okay, daughter, just follow me and everything will be okay. I could say that, but you gave me the wrong passage. And then Paul finishes, and I'm going to finish. He says this, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Faith and hope, that's all the other stuff. It's okay. Faith and hope remain, but the greatest of these is love. The most excellent is love. If we want, which we do, want to be a church that shows the world that Jesus is powerful and changes our lives, this is what Paul is saying. Tongues, great gifts, great oratory, yes, have them all. But what will really do it is when we, I'm not saying we're not, by the way, I'm just saying what the scripture says, we have to apply it. What will really do it is when we, those people that say that we believe in a loving and forgiving God, when we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us in such a way that we can be people that are like that, with each other and not just think that doesn't really matter that really says Paul is the most excellent way let's pray and when I say let let us pray I encourage you as you're sitting where you're sitting to ask God to um help you to know what he was saying to you through that word today. What was he saying to you? Um, Uniquely, he can speak to each one of us, can't he? And as you think about love in you and how you, in a sense, live out that love, you will know, I'm sure, the Holy Spirit will help you to see or your own conscience or mind will help you to see. Perhaps there are some ways, some people, some situations where you know, you just know that you don't love in the way that God says you should love. And you've got a whole bunch of good reasons why not. You can justify it over and over and over and over again. (laughs) But what Paul says is there really is no replacement for love. And if we want all of us to be who Jesus intends for us to be, we need to get unstuck from that place where we've allowed ourselves to get stuck and move on. So just take a minute. I know time is a bit late and I don't, I'm not sure what happens next. We're probably going to sing or something. I'm not sure. But just take one minute, would you, as you're sitting there, to ask the Holy Spirit to speak into your life what it is, if anything, that God is asking you to do now so that you can be a person who pursues love as the most excellent thing.